We're going to be looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 10 today, so if you'd like to turn there. You may remember in the last chapter, Paul challenged the Corinthians in the sense that they were taking the Lord for granted, but also to run the race that he had set out for them. In this chapter, you could think of it as him following on the heels of that, and he's warning them about what happens if they, if they don't take up that race. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we'll start at verse 24 in chapter 9 and read through verse 13. Hear the reading of God's Word. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others... I myself should be disqualified. For I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food, and all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, With most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written, the people sat down to eat and to drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. So ask the Lord to bless his word. Dear Almighty God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Pray, Lord, that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand it. You know, Lord, how I have wrestled with this text, and it is a difficult one, Lord, I I think, not so much for its complexity, but, Lord, for the hardness of what it challenges us with. And I I pray, Lord, that uh, you would meet us there, you would help us to receive it, and that you would encourage your saints in it. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, how is your walk with the Lord going? Elder visits, and that's the question. Um, Maybe you have that private moment on your own. Do you feel like uh, you're on fire? You're running after the Lord for the Lord. 
Or would you describe it differently? Would you describe it perhaps as a, a dry spell, a slow time, perhaps uh, stagnant, or you're struggling with doubt, or perhaps uh, backsliding? None of us are all the way there yet, and at the same time, there are also times, and every seasoned saint has experienced these, when we're just not in a good place with the Lord. And that's where the Corinthians appear to be here. By all indications, what we've already read in the letter, there's partisan backsliding. They've got a man who uh, is boasting in his incest, and they're boasting in their having the incestuous man in their midst. They're suing one another in secular court. They've got a lackadaisical attitude about sexual sin. They're careless with respect to self-control. They are a people that is not in a good place with the Lord. But what's even more concerning is their apparent insensitivity to that. You see, even after Paul's earlier interventions, they seem to be little moved. This is not his first letter to them. He spent a long time with them. And so I ask you, have you ever been there? I think the answer is that many of us have. It's when the Christian life feels like you're going through the motions or it's cold, it's distant, it's, it's inconsequential. Sometimes it sneaks up on us, but once we get there, once we get in that place, um, we just feel stuck or trapped. And so how do we break out of that? That's, that's where... Paul meets us in this passage. This is a wake-up call to sleepy saints. And he sounds that alarm by first trying to get their attention, second by pointing out the root of the problem, and then third by explaining what to do about it. And so let's look at these in turn. First, getting their attention. He says, verse 1 and following, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the same spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And that might not seem to scream at getting your attention, um, but it it, it should have for the Corinthians. And the first reason why is because of the relevance. We're confronted with so many warnings today. We have warnings on coffee cups and, and plastic bags and batteries and, I mean, everywhere, warnings. And we become desensitized to warnings. But what marks out warnings is warnings that, that have greater relevance. This warning is exceedingly relevant it's not a story about unrelated things or unrelated peoples out there, but their people. It's about their fathers. And while they may be distant from them in time and space, they're also, Paul makes very clear, like them. They're like them in every way that matters. Paul tells them that they, like them, were baptized. Like them, they had the same spiritual food. Like them, they, they ate the same spiritual, uh, drank the same spiritual drink. And his point is, he repeats it twice, is that they're the same. This story that he's telling is neither an unrelated story or a history lesson, but it's in many ways a picture of themselves. The Corinthians, in that sense, aren't charting new territory, but the same old territory. And it's dangerous territory. That's what Paul doesn't want them to be unaware of. 
And it also brings to mind the, the other important feature of this warning, its weight. In verse 5, Paul says, Nevertheless, such a, such a soft word, isn't it? It's a profoundly understated word. It gives the sense in the transition that even still, it wasn't enough. Even, even though they were baptized, even though they drank the same spiritual drink, even though they ate the spiritual food, which was specifically Christ. Even though they sat under Moses' preaching, even though they were born into a covenant family, nevertheless, God was not pleased with most of them, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. And that too is maybe a a statement that doesn't shock us quite like it should, but it's a profoundly sobering consequence. Because Paul's referring to that space in Israel's history in which most of them represented almost the entirety of them. And overthrown didn't merely mean that they were conquered by a foreign army, but as the NIV informed by Numbers 14.29 translates it, their bodies were, were scattered in the wilderness. And thus, divine displeasure here isn't, isn't mere disappointment, but that which brings divine judgment. And so the Corinthians, if they're indeed alive, this is a warning that's supposed to be alarming to them. It's supposed to sit them up out of bed. It's supposed to shock them. It's supposed to wake them up so fast that they can't help but start asking questions. What did they do wrong? Where did they go wrong? How did they earn the displeasure of God? And that's where Paul moves next. Point two, their problem. He says, verse six, now these things took place as examples for us that we might not desire evil as they did. Again, this is a a shocker. It should be a shocker. First of all, it's extreme, right? The word translated desire here comes from the Greek word, uh, you probably didn't know this, epithumatos. Its root is getting at the intestine in your stomach. It's to say, this is that deepest part of you from the pit of your being, kind of a craving for something. And again, that shockingly, that, that craving is for, of all things, evil. It's for that which is specifically against good. It's opposed to God. It's the, it's the desire to be opposed to God. And that sounds awful. And yet it's worse, because you see, the ones who have this desire, they're not the normal, murderous, thugging, thieves kind of bad guys, but they're the, they're the good guys. It's the covenant people of God that are opposed to God. And it, yet even that isn't quite the whole story, because the people Paul is referring to are amongst some of the most privileged people of God that there have been. Their baptism was through the Red Sea. They saw God destroy what was then the mightiest army in the world, and and that with a most obviously supernatural miracle. God could have done it with a a natural phenomenon, and that would have been worthy of praise too, but but he does it this way so that they can see it. They they walked across that seabed on dry land. They pulled out stones from the Red Sea and piled them up on the other side to, to remind themselves of the awesome work that God had done. And after having safely crossed, they watched God 
close the way behind them and throw their captors who had, who had kept them captive, who had ruled over them for ages into the sea like they're nothing. And yet still, even after seeing so much of the power of God, experiencing so much of the goodness and the grace of God, most of them, Paul tells us, desired evil. And that's the root of their problem, but it's, it's manifest in a whole variety of ways. Paul highlights four in particular. The first is idolatry. He says, verse 7, Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it is written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And again, we're like, well, what's wrong with eating and drinking and playing? But friends, this is, this is, this is bringing to mind that awful, unforgettable event in Israel's history when they, when they constructed the, the golden calf and worshipped the golden calf, when the, when the people pleaded with Aaron to make other gods to go out before them. And without any apparent reservation, Aaron did. He gathered gifts from the people, then he melted them down, and then he formed that idol into a, the form of a golden calf. And then, what does he do? He ascribes to the calf what the Lord had done. And then he calls the people and they bow down and they worship it. And likewise, without any reservation, they do. It was like it was tapping into something inside of them. And it was. It wasn't coercion that brought them there, but, but it was opportunity. And so the yet deeper tragedy of this extraordinary betrayal, when, when they robbed the Lord of what belonged to him, their allegiance, their worship, their thanksgiving, their love, their praise, everything, and give it to another, was that it came not from outside of them, but from in them. They desired it. And the same is true of the next. Paul tells us, that verse 8, we must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. This was that occasion in Israel when Numbers 25 tells us that the people of Israel began to whore with the daughters of Moab. It's again grotesque, it's, it's disgusting, it's tragic. And yet we also find in this, this passage that Paul's referring to how this desire for evil begets even more desire for evil. You see, the story continues quickly. Immediately from their whoring, it says, These, the daughters of Moab, invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods, and the people bowed down to their gods. And so Israel yoked himself to Baal of Peor, or to their gods. And that's the path that this indulging in the flesh takes. It starts on the inside and then it promises relief and satisfaction and freedom, but it quickly moves from there onto even more hunger and even more captivity. And yet Paul goes on. He warns them too about putting God to the test. He says, verse 9, we must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents. This was that occasion when Israel tested the extent of God's care. So they, they ridiculed God because he had not provided sufficient variety in the food that he rained from the heavens. It's an activity that flows not out of a desire to serve the Lord, but an evil desire to master the Lord, to have him serve us. It's not concerned about how much they can do for the Lord, but how much they can get out of the Lord. And Paul goes on. He says, verse 10, we must not grumble 
as some of them did, and were destroyed by the destroyer. And this refers to that event in Israel's history when Korah and the people with him, they grumbled against Aaron and Moses and the Lord. They did not feel that they had received an adequate post in the temple. They deserved more. It's that feeling that the Lord is depriving you. It's where grumbling begins. It comes from this doubting of the Lord's goodness. It's how the devil first deceived Eve in the garden. He said, did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? It's that sense of, if God's really good, then what, why would he deprive you? Is he really good? And, and grumbling answers, well, I guess he's, he's not good. He, he isn't good. And then it moves from there to self-pity and bitterness, and not so far after that to contesting and rejecting. And so then the question, what does all this have to do with us? Why, Paul? Why, why spend the exhaustive, um, expansive net of some of the worst tragedies in Israel's history? Perhaps the Corinthians were asking themselves the same question. They get that they are like their Israelite fathers in certain ways, but surely not, Paul. Not in these ways. You know, that's exactly what Paul's saying. That's why the large net of examples, they're supposed to recognize themselves in these examples, and, and we are too. And so do you. We might not be crafting and worshiping a golden calf in the desert, but our idolatries, they're not quite as subtle as we presume. The Lord sees what we're doing when we enslave ourselves to our work, to money, to Facebook fandom and all kinds of other things. He sees and He knows what we're doing when we sink ourselves into the lusts of our flesh. It doesn't matter if, if that lust is after pornography, sports, gaming, shopping, hunting, or fishing. It's, it, it's all the same root. And it's the same for testing the Lord. While we might not be ridiculing Him for, for the lack of variety of the, of the food raining from heaven, we test the boundaries of how much we can drink, how much we can eat, how much we can spend, how much we can binge watch on Netflix. We, how much can we get away with before the Lord notices? And likewise with grumbling, we not, might not be complaining about our post in the temple, but our list of grievances is long and concrete in our minds. It doesn't take us long to list them. We don't have enough money. We don't have enough sex or house or respect or work or whatever. It's all on the tip of our tongue. And, and oftentimes it sails off the end of it to our mothers and our brothers and our sisters. And so this awful behavior, this behavior that hates God and that God hates, Paul is telling us it's going on in us too. The Israelite problem is the Corinthian problem, and it's our problem. And so, what do we do? What can we do? Point three, how to respond. Paul says, verse 11, Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. So though they look like you and they are like you, you're not them yet, per se. And therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. In other words, if you think that you are among those who stand with the Lord, if you think you're a Christian, then this call is to you. Take heed, 
Be warned, because so did the Israelites, and so did the Corinthians. It's why Paul's writing to the Corinthians. It's why, it's why Paul's showing the Corinthians the Israelites. Again, this problem that they had and they suffered for is the same problem we have. And so the first part of our response is to just simply respond. It's to use that old AA approach. It's to wake up and own it. Hi, my name is Jeff, or your name, and I have a problem. I desire evil. And in that desire, I am tempted. I am tempted to exchange the allegiance, the praise, the service that belongs to God alone for a lie. For imposters, I am tempted to indulge in the lusts of my flesh. I am tempted to test the Lord. I am tempted to grumble. This is my problem. And it's your problem. As Paul continues in verse 13, no temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. In other words, you're not unique. Nobody gets missed. It's not just you, but this is everyone's struggle. And while in a certain vein, you know, a lot of times, oh, there's others. Well, that's good news. It's not Paul's point here. It's not that there's a whole bunch of other strugglers out there. So be encouraged by the fellowship of strugglers, but the devastating hard news that all of us have the same disease. And this, and this unless something else happens, their end will be our end. Thankfully, something else happens. Paul continues with these blessed words, God is faithful. That's good news. They should sound to us like a cure for cancer because as much as our temptations may feel like insurmountable obstacles, like we're trapped or we're enslaved to them and there's no way out but down and darker and deeper, God is faithful means that God cares about us there. As the writer to the Hebrews tells us, and it was referenced in the service this morning and by Wayne this morning, which is great. It's an awesome text. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are. And as a result, he will neither leave us or forsake us, but he has made a way out for us. That's what Paul tells us next. He says, he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide a way of escape that you may be able to endure it. And that means not only are we not trapped, not only is God with us and behind us, but he's also standing over the whole thing, the whole time for our good. And that, think about this. All while we're wrestling with what? We're wrestling with a desire for evil. We're wrestling with a desire to oppose God, and God cares about us. It's amazing, right? But it also begs us to ask why, to what end? And the answer clearly is here, so that we, we can fight. So that we will fight. That's why Paul writes it the way that he does. It's focused on our ability. It's, it's shaped for our ability. It's not over our ability. It's, it's so that we can do it for our endurance. And so this is not a call to sit back and let God, but a call to get up for God's sake. And that's what we need to take away from here. Paul is calling us to wake up and fight. So my question to you this evening is, are you? How's your walk with the Lord going? Are you even awake? 
It's easy to get complacent here. It's easy to give ourselves a divinely ordered pass. And so, where are you? Are there any spaces where you've accepted, consented to, or given yourself over to a defeated Christian life? Are there places where you've given your desire for evil free license to reign over your desire for good? Paul's telling us here that our answers actually matter. Remember how Paul described his own race at the end of chapter 9? He said, I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, after enjoying all these benefits, I myself, Paul, Paul, should be disqualified. It's a sobering thought. It's the thought that we've been given this race to run, but but we have to run lest we be disqualified. Or as he puts it here, we have to take heed lest we fall. There's no exemption here or validation clause for for being uh, born into a Christian family, for living in, in Christian West Michigan Mecca, or going to church twice on Sunday, or for just hearing the Lord's mercy. All of that's good, it's great, it's a wonderful, genuine blessing, but nevertheless, it's not enough. We actually have to be changed by it. And that change, Paul tells us, is evidenced in our running this race. That's what Paul's getting at here. It's not to make us crazy self-conscious. It's not to drive us into some legalistic works righteousness program. It's not to shake our faith or even just to spur on our growth. But it's, as our confession puts it, to, to make our calling and election sure. That's why these illustrations are so sad. These Israelites, they thought they were the people of God. But they weren't sure. They were asleep and they went to their graves asleep. But it doesn't have to be the same with us. That's, that's the point of the warning. Because their example was for our instruction. And so let's be instructed. If you believe you're a Christian, then as Paul puts it, take heed, wake up, and fight. And as we do, He's given us every hope that we can. It's good news. It's good news for sinners who feel like there's no way out and there's no hope here. God, in His mercy, has given us a way to endure our temptation and to make progress in our temptation. And yet at the same time, it's this very call to fight and the corresponding good news that we can fight It sometimes feels like the death knell in our coffin as a Christian. It shakes our faith. Because you see, while Christ was tempted in in every way that we were and did not sin, we look in the mirror and we know that we've sinned. And we do sin. It's not just our problem that we're tempted, but that we fall short in this fight every day. And so what do we do after the fall? Is there any hope for us there. Well, that's some of the secret power of these Israelite examples. While they show us obviously, and Paul highlights that, the tragic depth and nature of our problem and the appropriate severity of God's response, they also reveal His faithfulness. You see, even after the exceedingly evil idolatry of the golden calf, the Lord showed mercy. He preserved His people. Even after the serpent's the Lord 
showed a way out of the serpents. And he did the same thing in some measure with the indulging in sexual immorality, the testing and the grumbling. And so why? Why, why the restraint, God, of what we actually deserve? Well, to point forward to when he would bring the full weight of the consequences that we deserve on our Savior. And that's where our hope and after temptation needs to come from. It's in that faithfulness of God that he expressed not in a Christ that came only to help us, but in a Christ that came to save us. And as we come to the Lord's table, which we're about to do shortly, that's what he reminds us of. He has borne our sins in his body completely and fully so that we can be free. We're not trapped. And we're not done after we fall. And so, wake up and respond to that hope that Christ gives. Because doing so is also one of the simplest evidences that the Holy Spirit is at work in you and that you do belong to the Lord. And so if you're wrestling in your soul right now against temptation, well then receive that good news that the Lord has made a way for you to endure it and fight in that hope. And if you're wrestling on the other side of temptation, you've fallen and you are grappling with the shame and the guilt of the reality that you have betrayed the Lord, you have desired evil, then receive that miracle of good news that the Lord is ready to show you His mercy and care again. And so repent, and then trusting in the Lord and in the power of the Lord, let's lay aside, as Hebrews says, every weight and sin which clings so closely and run with endurance the race that he has set out for us. Amen? Let's pray. Dear Almighty God, Lord, this is such a sobering warning. We pray, Lord, that you would sober us in it. We pray, Lord, that it would not uh, smooth over us, but you would use what you used for the Corinthians to wake us up to, that we may not take such a complacent and lackadaisical attitude to our sin, Lord, but we would commit ourselves to you and struggle and fight against these temptations, that we would run this race that you have set out before us, Lord, and that we would latch hold of Christ and the hope that you have given us in Christ. And if, Lord, we have fallen, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage those saints you are the God who picks us up after we fall. And so, Lord, I, I pray for your grace and mercy to be known to them and that you would help them to get back up and to fight again. For your glory, in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.